Good morning. Please turn with me to the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. We will begin reading at verse 13, and we will continue on to the end of chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord be glorified by the preaching of his word. Am I, is the mic okay? Working? Great. All right. All right, if you're still in Isaiah 52, uh, we're going to be looking at the passage in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. But if you're not there, you can go ahead and turn. As you've 
been informed. My name is Robert Gonzalez. I'm a uh, professor and the dean of Reformed Baptist Seminary. I've gotten to know Pastor Steve over the last few years, and it's been a pleasure to get to know him. And uh, he has uh, directed some of the young men of the church here to study at RBS, and that's been a joy. I want to apologize if I seem a bit rude and standoffish, um, but I, I seem to have picked up a cold yesterday or a flu of some sort, so, um, you know, I'm, I, I like it when I go down to the Dominican Republic because everybody uh, hugs and gives that holy, you know, kiss uh, on the cheek, um, and here in America, you know, we're a little bit more standoffish in that we just give handshakes, but, but now I can't even give handshakes, and, uh, but at least COVID has introduced us to the, the elbow greeting, and so I can at least do that. Um, but anyway, it is a joy to be here. We're very grateful for the kindness of your church, um, letting Becky and I stay at, at, a, at a hotel nearby and even giving us an extra night uh, so we could visit Santa Cruz. I grew up in California, was born in Vacaville, 1963. I lived the first 22 years of my life there and never visited Santa Cruz. And then we moved back when I was 50 to Sacramento and still haven't. This is the first time. I mean, we've been to Carmel, Monterey, Capitola, but haven't been to Santa Cruz. So, finally made it. Very thankful for that. Well, let me say a word of prayer, and, and then we'll get started with our study this morning. Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to open up your word to your people, and I pray that you would bless us and edify us and instruct us. This is the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would magnify your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, before us today. And we pray and ask your blessing in his name. Amen. Well, as an Old Testament professor, I've had to wrestle with the fact that most Christians prefer to hear sermons from the New Testament as opposed to the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered why that is the case? Well, Bible scholars offer various reasons for that, but I think that perhaps the main reason is the perception that Jesus Christ is not to be found in the Old Testament. And after all, for the Christian, Christ is precious. Um, we love Him. We want to have fellowship with Him. We want to know about Him. And if that's the case, and we don't believe that Jesus is to be found in the Old Testament, then we, we're not always interested in hearing or reading from our Old Testament scriptures. I know when I get to I have opportunities to go out and meet new churches and teach the Bible that I enjoy uh, getting to know God's people, and I've been to various states in the U.S., I've been to various countries in uh, particularly Latin America to teach the scriptures. Um, and I enjoy those times, but I, 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 I prefer, if possible, to bring my wife. Um, and if I don't get to bring my wife, it isn't long before I'm feeling homesick and I get very anxious to return. Well, I think in the same way as Christians, sometimes we, we enjoy maybe reading some of the stories of the Old Testament or working through the Proverbs or memorizing some of the Psalms. But 
Even in our devotional life, it isn't long before we get homesick for the New Testament. And that's because we are conditioned to think that the New Testament is where Jesus is found. But what if I were to tell you that Christ is actually present in the Old Testament? Well, that's actually not even just my opinion. That's the opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember what he said to the Jews, Moses wrote about me. And he said to his own disciples, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus is assuring us that he is present in the Old Testament. And so we we don't need to feel deprived when we read and study our Old Testament scriptures because Christ is there. We simply need the eyes of faith to see him and we need to be willing to put forth the effort to look for him. And so with that in view, I want to spend a little time this morning speaking to you about Jesus, but I want to do so from the Old Testament and in particular from this passage here in Isaiah chapter 52. I often tell people that finding Christ in the Old Testament is like whale watching. I'm not sure if there are any whales outside of uh, Santa Cruz, but if there are, and if you're familiar with whale watching, most of your whale sightings are going to take place below the surface of the water. You may be on a boat or a raft, and and you're going to look just below the surface, and you're going to see the whales swimming. Every once in a while, their back comes up, and their dorsal fin will breach the surface. And that's the way it is for the Old Testament. Most of the time, Christ is just below the surface of the text. But every once in a while, that whale will come breaching the surface of the water, and his entire body comes out, and you get to see him in plain sight. Well, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 is one such passage. It is as if the person and work of the Messiah comes bursting out of these pages into plain sight. And so, what I want to do here is I want to look with you at the gospel according to the prophet Isaiah. As Franz Delitzsch, a German commentator, puts it, writing about this passage of scripture, he says, It looks as if it had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. And what's even more remarkable, folks, is the fact that these words were pinned over 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Our passage is one of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. The first of these songs occurs in chapter 42, the second in chapter 49, the third in chapter 50, and then we have this song beginning in verse 13 of chapter 52, going through chapter 53. And each of these songs is going to build upon the other. Each of them is going to expand on and fill out information about the person and work of the Messiah. Now, the one we're going to look at here, most people think that it's confined to chapter 53. If someone was to ask you, uh, what's the passage about the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah? You would say Isaiah chapter 53, but actually it begins in chapter 52, verse 13. 
And you can divide it up into five sections, each consisting of three verses. So you've got 52, 13 through 15, 53, 1 through 3, and then 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. And as you move to each section, there are more Hebrew words. So it gets longer and longer and longer. It builds up, as it were, to a crescendo. The section we're going to look at this morning, chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, is actually an introduction to the whole uh, song. And it serves as a kind of a preface, as an overview to all of the themes that you're going to find in chapter 53. In fact, if I want to be really sort of nifty or tricky, I could say I'm going to preach from Isaiah 53 without even looking at the text. I just go to Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. All right? Um, And so that's what's going to be the focus of our study. And if you want a title for our meditation this morning, it is Glory Through Suffering. Glory Through Suffering. And my thesis is as follows. Not only does God save His people through His Son, Jesus the Messiah... But God accomplishes this salvation through His Son in the most surprising and unexpected way. Has anyone ever asked you, what is it that makes Christianity unique and different from all other religions? If someone does ask that question, you could answer it this way. All other religions basically present some sort of salvation in which man is going to be engaged in work. He's going to do something. He's going to perform some kind of rite or ceremony, or he's going to uh, attain a certain level of morality in order to save himself. Whereas in Christianity, God's the one who does the saving. To put it simply, all other religions say, do. Christianity says, done. God does it. But that's not the only thing that's unique about Christianity. It's not just that God does the saving, but it's the way in which God saves. That's so unique. Because in Christianity, God saves through suffering. God gets the victory by suffering defeat. And that's really what this passage is all about. It begins with an interjection. Notice again our text, Isaiah 53, verse 13. Behold, my servant. If you had something important to say, something urgent to say, and you wanted to get people's attention, you would use this Hebrew term translated, behold. It's as if you're clapping your hands and shouting, look here. Or, if you can imagine a grandparent, okay, taking some photos out of her purse of her little newborn grandchild and showing them to others, saying, Would you just look at her? Look at him. Look at this picture. Look at that picture. Well, that's what we have here. Yahweh is trying to capture people's attention. He's saying, I have someone who's important, someone I want you to consider. Behold my Servant. And we shouldn't think of the term servant here as just an ordinary title or even a demeaning title. Rather, in this case, it's a title of honor. 
It's referring to an entity whom God is appointing to fulfill an important mission. As a matter of fact, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is referred to as Yahweh's servant because he's been appointed to preach the word of Yahweh to the people of Israel. In fact, the people of Israel, the nation, is referred to in this prophecy as the servant of Yahweh because God has called Israel out of Egypt and appointed Israel to be a light to the nations. However, the servant of Yahweh in this text is neither the prophet Isaiah nor the nation of Israel because this servant is going to perform a work that neither Isaiah nor Israel could ever hope to accomplish. For as we're going to see, the servant of the Lord here is going to accomplish redemption of God's people. And so I want to look at this passage under three headings. Number one, verse 13, if you're taking notes, the servant succeeds. Verse 14, the servant suffers. And verse 15, the servant saves. Pretty simple. So let's consider these in turn. And first of all, I invite you to consider with me the fact that the servant succeeds. The servant succeeds. And at this point, I have to give something of what I might call a spoiler alert. Almost everybody in my family hates spoilers. Whenever I try to explain something that's going to happen, they're like, Dad, quiet. They like the tension. They like not knowing how the ending is going to turn out. But in this case, the Lord knows that you and I need to hear the end of the story before we're presented with the beginning or the middle of the story. And so he kind of begins, as it were, with the end. And he stresses the servant's ultimate success in this task that he will carry out. Here's how the ESV puts it. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, the Hebrew term translated act wisely is not just simply describing someone who's got a high IQ. But in the biblical world, wisdom is referring to the capacity to solve problems and to overcome challenges. And so the servant of Yahweh is someone who will, one, know what needs to be done, and two, the best way to get that task accomplished. And this is why some English translations render this, he shall prosper, or he shall succeed. Now, you and I admire people that succeed. Maybe you've seen those videos on YouTube entitled, Humans Are Amazing. And they're videos of these individuals who perform unbelievable physical feats, and you watch them and your jaw drops and you say, how did they do that? And we admire people who can do those things. Or think of inventors like, say, Elon Musk. Someone tells Mr. Musk, it can't be done. And that only spurs him on to try to solve the problem, to overcome the challenge. Again, we admire such people. Well, the servant of Yahweh is like that. He's going to succeed, but he's even much more successful than the most successful person we can even imagine. And the prophet brings this out. 
by that threefold repetition. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. It turns out in the biblical world that if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. And if you really want to underscore its superlative nature, you say it three times. Just as in the song that we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy. When the seraphim in Isaiah 6 describe God that way, what they're actually saying is that Yahweh is in a class all of his own. He's unique. He's without peer. And so here in our text, when the prophet describes him as being high and lifted up and exalted, what he's saying is that this this servant of Yahweh, his success is unparalleled. He's in a class of his own. But I also think that as the servant is presented to us in this passage by Yahweh, there's a note of parental pride. All right? You see this on Facebook, don't you, with parents posting pictures of little Johnny kicking a a, a goal uh, while he's playing soccer, or maybe um, Betty playing her violin at a school recital. And, uh, and they're proud. They want you to see the success of their child. I know my daughter never wanted me to show off her success. You know, Dad, stop doing that. I had to get her permission. But, but as parents, we, we're proud of our children when they succeed. Well, I think Yahweh is proud of his servant. And we see this echoed, do we not, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism when he's coming out of the water And there's a voice thundering from heaven where the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. That's Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold my servant. He shall succeed. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So... That's the first part, or shall we say that's the ending presented first, okay? But now we have, as we move from verse 13 to verse 14, we have a a, a sudden, and you might even say a radical thematic shift. We have unparalleled success in verse 13, but now in verse 14 we have unimaginable suffering. The servant suffers. And it's going to be as if, as we make this transition, as if the prophet takes us up in verse 13 to the highest mountain. But then in verse 14, he drops us from that mountain into the lowest and darkest pit. One English version tries to bring this contrast out by inserting a phrase between verses 13 and 14 that's really not in the Hebrew. Verse 13, it translates it this way, Look! My servant shall succeed. And then verse 14 begins, But he did not begin that way. The ESV just leaves us to infer the contrast. It reads, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, admittedly, the wording of the ESV and even of the Hebrew itself is a bit challenging. 
And so let me point out two grammatical features regarding the structure here that might help us understand the verse better. First of all, you probably note the shift from the second person you in verse in the first line, followed by a return to the third person his in the rest of the verse. Did you see that? As many as were astonished at you, and then it says his appearance was so marred. Now, that's really odd in, in English, but in Hebrew it's not so odd. It was a very common thing, especially in poetry. It's almost as if, as Yahweh is describing this, that he turns to the servant at his right hand, so to speak. And he says, as many as were astonished at you. And then he looks back at Israel and he says, his appearance. All right? It gives a sense of vividness to the passage, as if the servant and Israel are all present there. The second thing I want you to notice is that the ESV translators bracket the second part of the verse with M dashes. Those are those really long dashes that you see. And they do that because they think that section is parenthetical. So verse 14, as it begins, as many were astonished at you, actually picks up in the first part of verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. And those words in between are like a parenthesis. And they serve in order to expand on the meaning of the first part of the verse. As many as were astonished at you, what does that mean? Why were they astonished? And then he gives the parenthetical remark that explains. Okay? So that's kind of what's going on. And with that in mind, let me try to unpack the meaning of the verse. All right? The first thing I want you to do is to notice here what I'm calling the reaction of the many. The reaction of the many. The prophet doesn't begin by describing the servant's suffering, but rather he describes the people's reaction to his suffering. As many were astonished at you. That's not a good word choice. Astonished. Um, That's kind of a nebulous term, ambiguous. I prefer the NIV's appalled. That's really bringing out the idea of the Hebrew term. Or the New English translation renders it horrified. As many as were horrified at you. I want you to imagine that someone invites you to the most gut-wrenching, shocking, terror-producing horror film ever produced. And as you walk into the theater, you're not allowed to look at the picture, at least not initially. The first thing you're allowed to see is to look backwards at the faces of the people. And instead of watching the film, you actually watch their faces and you draw your impression of the film by looking at the expressions of their faces. And you see their their eyes widen. You see their Their foreheads wrinkle. You see their jaws drop. You see their face pale and tremble. And all of a sudden, you conjure up in your mind this picture of horror. Well, that's what the prophet's doing for us here. He's giving you a sense of the shocked reaction of people to 
the Messiah. And of course, as he does it that way, that raises in your, question, your mind the question, what is it that's caused such shock? And he gives us the answer in the next part of the verse. The suffering of the one. The suffering of the one. He says, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Now the portrait here is obviously that of a human face that's been mutilated beyond recognition. The New Living Translation brings this out when it reads, His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human, and from his appearance one could scarcely know that he was a man. When I read this text, I I recalled reading these articles and seeing these photographs of individuals who had had acid thrown into their face. They'd been attacked. Acid attacks are not very common in the West, but in Eastern societies, Middle Eastern in particular, it's very common. Places like Egypt or Pakistan or India especially. In fact, in India, over 300 acid attacks are recorded per year. The attacker takes acid and he throws it into the face of the victim. And most of the time, the victims are are women. And beautiful women, in fact. Uh, But they're attacked because they perhaps turned away a sexual advance or they turned down a marriage proposal or sometimes they're attacked just because they're Christians. And the acid is extremely corrosive. And it, it mutilates their face. It causes deep pain. And it mutilates them even beyond recognition. And if you were to ask one of these women, what's the most painful aspect of that acid attack, they would probably not say the initial pain. But rather the lifelong pain of being rejected by other people, being shunned, having people turn away their faces from them. Well, I think that's something of the picture that the prophet wants to conjure up in our minds in terms of the reaction of the people to the Messiah, the suffering of the one. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's hard to read this passage and not think of the gospel accounts that depict Christ's arrest and his punishment where the Roman soldiers cover his face and begin to punch him. One punch after the other, uh, mutilating his face beyond recognition and then taking that crown of thorns and pressing it into his head and causing the blood to run down his face. Certainly that's part of the picture. But again, it goes beyond that. It's not just the physical suffering. It's the emotional suffering that goes with it. He's rejected. He's despised by men. We see this, by the way, brought out a little bit more in chapter 53. We're not going to look at that passage in detail, but let me just read the first three verses. Isaiah 53. Who believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of the Messiah, servant of Yahweh, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, 
and no beauty that we should desire him. He was, here it is, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And again, as we read the New Testament, we see this sort of response to Jesus. We're told in the Gospel of John that he made the world, he was in the world, and yet the world did not know him. It didn't want to know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. By and large, Jesus was rejected by men. Indeed, even of his own disciples, he says just before his arrest, all of you will fall away because of me. And so we read that his disciples deserted him. He says of Peter, before the cock cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then it gets even darker because we read that God turns his own back on Jesus so that as he's being crucified, Jesus cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Imagine you're involved in a very serious automobile accident. You're in the ICU. You're in great pain. Your life is hanging by a thread. The doctor tells you that a close family member has arrived to see you, and he leaves the room, and as the doctor leaves the room, the family member comes in, and the family member looks at your face, and they cover their mouth in shock. And they leave the room. They can't bear to look upon you. And there you are alone. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejected by men, forsaken by his own disciples, and abandoned by his Father on the cross. I would say that verse 14 sounds the very opposite of a happy story. There's pain, there's disfigurement, There's emotional anguish, there's rejection, there's abandonment. And by the way, can you see now why the Holy Spirit had to start the passage by telling us the ending? By assuring us that it's going to turn out well? Because if we just had verse 14, of all men, we'd be most miserable. But the Lord wants us to know it's going to turn out All right, and so that brings us to the question, how? How is it going to turn out all right? And we come now to verse 15. So we've seen the servant is going to succeed, verse 13. The servant's going to suffer, verse 14. And then in verse 15, the servant saves. And here, we're introduced to a very remarkable twist in the plot. What we learn is not that the servant will succeed despite suffering, but rather he shall succeed through suffering. More precisely, we learn that Yahweh's servant saves through suffering. Notice how it's expressed. Verse 15, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. 
So, so, that is to say, in this manner, shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now we can divide this verse up into two parts. The first thing we see is the nature of the servant's work. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And admittedly, those words seem a little bit strange to our modern American ears. What does it mean to sprinkle many nations? In fact, some English translations sense that the reader doesn't understand that, so they translate it something like, so shall he startle many nations. However, the textual evidence supports the translation of the ESV. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What's more, that language really would have been very familiar to Isaiah's audience. It's the language of purification, and it was associated with the work that the priests did on behalf of the people of Israel. For example, remember the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would slaughter a goat as a sin offering for the people, and then he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the altar and on the mercy seat. And so what we have in the opening of verse 15 is an allusion to the Messiah's priestly work. Like the great high priest, he's going to atone for the sins of the people through a bloody sacrifice. Only, in this case, the sacrifice is himself. Dear friends, I want to suggest to you that here in Isaiah we have an answer to the ancient riddle. The riddle I'm speaking of was the riddle that God gave to mankind in the earliest days of human history, just subsequent to mankind's fall into sin. You remember God's words to the serpent that he pronounced in that doom oracle, where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you read that in its context, it's clear that it's a prophecy of judgment against the serpent, that the woman's offspring, the promised seed, is going to be successful and will get the victory ultimately. However, The ESV does a poor job of translating the key term in the verse. It translates it, bruise. And that's kind of a a weak translation. He's going to do more than just simply bruise the head of the serpent. I think the NIV's reading is much better. He shall crush your head. In other words, the idea is that of a lethal strike. However, what's interesting is the very same Hebrew word is used to refer to the serpent's action against the offspring. You shall strike, you shall mortally wound, you could translate it. You shall mortally wound the offspring in the heel. And that really introduces the riddle. Listen carefully. Whose death deals a deadly blow against him who has the power of death. Let me repeat that. Whose death deals a deadly blow against him who has the power 
of death. By the way, write that down, and perhaps when you're sitting on a plane next to somebody, you can share the riddle and see if they can get the answer. That's a great opportunity to share the gospel. All right? Well, Isaiah has the answer to that riddle. Behold, the Lord's servant shall sprinkle many nations. As he'll go on to say in chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, or rather I'd translate it, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his lethal wounds, we are healed. I remember several years ago, I heard the testimony of a young man who had turned from a very hardcore atheism to Christianity. And I I remember having the opportunity to ask him, what was it that, when when you heard the gospel, what was it about the gospel that, that turned you away from atheism toward Christianity? And his answer was, You just can't make this stuff up. Humans would never invent a religion like this, a gospel like this, where God sacrifices His Son and allows His Son to be killed in order to save us from our sins. Well, that's the nature of the Messiah's saving work here. But that brings us then to the result. Look at the rest of verse 15. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, the, the expression kings in this verse is probably a, a metonymy, a literary device, in which a part refers to the whole. So the kings are representative of the nations. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and then these nations whom the kings represent, they're going to shut their mouths because of him. And you say, what's that mean? Well, it turns out that that expression in the ancient Near East, shutting one's mouth or being speechless, that expression is used to refer to the idea of awe or respect. For example, Job speaks of the way people used to treat him before his sickness with honor and respect. He says this in Job 29, 9-10. The princes stood in silence. They put their hands over their mouths. The highest officials of the city stood quietly, holding their tongues in respect. And then Job's going to do this very thing when Yahweh reveals himself to Job later in the book. In chapter 40, after God speaks to Job out of the storm, Job replies to Yahweh and says, I'm nothing. How could I find answers to your questions? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. It's that idea of of awe, of respect, of submission. And so with this in view, we should see that there's a change that's taken place as we move from verse 14, where they are astonished, to verse 15, where they shut their mouths. In verse 14, the many are appalled, but in verse 15, the many are awestruck. In verse 14, they're 
faces are turned in disgust. But in verse 15, the many bow their heads in reverence. And this radical change is further further highlighted in the rest of the passage where it says, For that which has not been told them, they now see. And that which they have not heard, they now understand. You see, in the Scriptures, the opening of the eyes to see and the unstopping of the ears to hear is a metaphor for conversion. And that's what this verse is depicting. There's a conversion that's taken place. In verse 14, the nations rejected the servant. But in verse 15, the nations received the servant. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes these lines in his letter to the Romans to justify his ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles where Christ has never been preached. So that those who have never heard would now hear and understand. You see, dear friends, Isaiah's prophecy is not just predicting the suffering and death of Jesus the Messiah, but it's also foretelling hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it ever happened. Your conversion, my conversion, even the formation of Trinity Bible Church. You ever think about that? Your church is prophesied in the book of Isaiah. The nations shall shut their mouths because of him. Well, by way of summary, and in closing this morning with some practical applications, Yahweh had called Israel to be a light to the nations, but the nation of Israel had miserably failed at that task. However, the prophet says one day in the future, God's going to raise up an individual from the nation of Israel who will succeed where Israel failed. He will be the servant of Yahweh that Israel failed to be. He will do a priestly work to atone not only for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of the whole world. This faithful servant of the Lord will finally fulfill the very heart of the Abrahamic promise where God says to Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The servant shall succeed, he shall suffer, and he shall save through suffering. And the Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful commentary on this prophecy in Isaiah in the letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Listen to these words. And as you listen to these words, I want you to think of the servant song in Isaiah. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a, of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Again, this is the answer to the riddle. It was a lethal blow that the, that the serpent struck against the sun. But lo and behold, it was a lethal blow that brought life. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has, there's our language, high, lifted up. God shall exalt him and bestow on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory through suffering. Let me close with just two lines of application. Number one, the Messiah's work is remarkable and will inevitably provoke two responses. Some will find him unattractive and even appalling. Some will come to find him awe-inspiring and appealing. As I noted earlier, the prophet elaborates on the first of these responses in the first verses of the next chapter, chapter 53, where he describes unbelief, who believed what he has heard from us. He describes this sense of finding him unattractive, no beauty in him, that we should desire him. And then rejection. We esteemed him not. We despised him. But what's interesting is that it's not just a description of how people are responding to Jesus. It's actually kind of framed as a confession, isn't it? Did you notice how the prophet actually uses the first person plural in that description? He doesn't just describe it in terms of people rejecting the Messiah, but he says, we. Look again at the language of verse 2 and following. Chapter 53. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's, it's as if Isaiah is standing alongside the people and confessing sin. And then notice the language of verses 4, four through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripe, wounds or stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can you see the shift that's taken place? There was this initial rejection. But then there's this conversion. There's this shutting of the mouth. There's this realization that, wait a minute, we thought he was accursed of God, but now we realize that God was laying our sins upon him. In other words, the prophet's depicting what would happen, for example, with those two thieves on the cross. One on Jesus' right hand and one on his left hand, who initially were appalled. Initially were astonished. Initially found Jesus unattractive. Initially mocked him. Initially said, get us off this cross and yourself if you're really the Messiah. They did not esteem him. But then you remember in that account that there was a change that took place in one of the thieves. All of a sudden, one of those thieves shut his mouth, as it were. He went from being appalled to being awestruck. He began to realize that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah. This was Yahweh's suffering servant on the cross right next to him. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, 
Remember me when you come into your your kingdom. You're going to succeed. I see that now, and you're going to succeed through suffering. Lord, save me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see those two responses. People either find him appalling or they find him attractive. And I ask you this morning, where do you fall among those two responses? Do you still find Jesus unattractive? Do you avoid conversations about him? I remember I grew up in a nominally Christian home. And when I was a teenager, there were some uh, instances and when people would share the gospel with me and I, I wanted to get away from them. I didn't want to talk about Jesus, even though I claimed to be a Christian. I despised him. I did not esteem him. But then there was a day when all of that changed. And I realized who he really was, and I realized what God had accomplished through him, and I, and I shut my mouth, and I became awestruck and attracted to him. Which of those two responses characterizes you? Dear friends, there's no neutral ground. Okay, Yahweh is saying to you this morning, Behold, I want you to look at, I want you to consider, I want you to respond to my servant. There's no in-between. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. What will be your response today? The second word of application I have is to the believer and to the church. And I close with this. When everything in life seems to go against you and there's no hope in sight, remember, remember this, that the storyline of redemption is one in which God snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. God snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. That's the story of the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'm given to discouragement. I'm a very melancholy kind of person, all right? Um, and, and we live, if you think about this, we live, you and I live right now in what is considered to be maybe the most Christian nation in the world. And yet, it seems that we're always in the minority today, that other people look down on us, that the church is despised, that Christians are mocked, that we're even hated. And as a result, I don't know about you, but I'm often tempted to despair, to give up, to say, what's the use, to throw in the towel. But then I read passages like this one, and I remind myself that, wait a minute, glory through suffering is the main theme of the Bible. That's, that's part of the story of redemption. And this is why the Apostle Paul can say, we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. This is why Peter can write to suffering believers and say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you as though some strange thing were happening to you. That's part of the story. That's the way God has written the script. 
Or, and I hope you don't mind me appealing to some extra-biblical literature here, as Samwise Gamgee would say to Frodo, It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. When the sun shines, he will shine out all the much clearer. Victory out of the jaws of defeat. That's the story of the Bible. That's the message of Isaiah, chapter 52, verses 12 through 15. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless this word to our souls today. We pray that if there's anyone here who's not yet shut their mouth out of awe and respect, out of faith and hope in Jesus the Messiah, that you would bring about that transformation in his or her heart today. We also pray, Lord, that those of us who are struggling with discouragement, those of us who feel that we're on the losing side, may we be encouraged to know that that is just apparent, that our weakness, our, our apparent defeat is only temporary, and that it's woven into the very story and fabric of redemption that you will Bring about glory and redemption through suffering, through apparent defeat. And God, may that encourage us to persevere to the end, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. May that be true of us. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.